0: gladdened and encouraged by many of you in the feedback I've gotten from you and how the Lord has blessed you through this course, and I hope that today's discussion will prove to be edifying to you as well. Today, we are looking at the last of the pitfalls described in the book, Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Reading the Bible, the last of the five pitfalls of interpretation, namely, Pride. We're going to take a look at that pitfall and how we can avoid it today. But let's briefly review some of the other pitfalls that we've looked at. We've looked at four. We only discussed one last week, but we discussed three the week before that. What What is one of the pitfalls that we can fall into that will cause us to misinterpret the Bible? What's one of them? Yes, relativism. Um, Bill, can you define what that was again? Um, That's right. Relativism might make us think that the meaning of the Bible can change depending on the culture, depending on the person, or that it's not knowable. Nobody can really know what it says. It's unclear. What's another pitfall that we can fall into? Well, again, maybe I can bring it back to your minds by example. When we say that uh, money is the root of all evil, that is a misinterpretation based on what? Lazy. That's right, just misreading the text, lazy misreading. If you don't take time to actually read through it, or to read through it carefully, you can fall into error. Or if I, if I mm, purposefully change the meaning of the text based on, Desires that I have, that's another pitfall, distorting desires. Or, when I think about, um, let's say I, I want to bring evolution into the Bible, what kind of pitfall is that? Yeah, Amy. That would be eisegesis, and many of these things are examples of eisegesis. We're reading meaning into the Bible rather than letting the meaning come out of the Bible. But specifically, when we talk about evolution and science, what are we using To help interpret the Bible, that will actually cause us to misinterpret the Bible. Man's ideas and experiences. This goes beyond science, it also talks about philosophy, marketing, even our own subjective experiences and feelings. When we bring those into how we should understand a a certain Bible verse, we're going to get off track, and as Bill mentioned, relativism. So these are all dangerous pitfalls and yet common pitfalls. Many people and ourselves have fallen into and can fall into, so we want to beware of them. Now, we've taken time to discuss each one of these, so if you missed any of them, please go back to the church website and uh, listen to the MP3 lesson. But today, we're going to talk about the last pitfall, which in many ways is the most dangerous, and it shows up in all these other kinds of pitfalls, and that is the pitfall of pride. Let's pray before we discuss that. Holy Father, I pray that you would bless our discussion today, help me to be able to explain clearly, help them be able to understand as they listen and be able to apply what we're talking about so that they would get the joy and the equipping that you meant to come from your scriptures. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so the last pitfall, pride. What is this? Well, in this pitfall, we let overconfidence in our ability to understand the Bible to cause us to be lazy in our own study, or unwilling to thoughtfully consider alternative interpretations. I'll say that one more time. So in this pitfall, pitfall of pride, we let overconfidence in our ability to understand the Bible to cause us to be lazy in our own study, or to be unwilling to thoughtfully consider alternative interpretations. This can be due to simple naivety, but more often it is just sinful pride. And we can look at the Pharisees as a prime example of this final final pitfall. They actually have been examples throughout, but they certainly are an example of the pitfall of pride. They refused to accept any of Jesus' teachings or to consider his claim to be Messiah or the Son of God, even in the face of obvious scriptural evidence and miraculous evidence. They just would not allow themselves to consider that what Jesus was saying was true. This is probably clearest when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I have that there as a biblical example. The Pharisees, they reacted very interestingly once he raised Lazarus from the dead, and everybody's like, "Wow, oh my goodness, look what God did!" How did the Pharisees react? <clears throat> if you recall, yes, yeah, Steve. Oh, we gotta kill this guy because everybody's gonna believe on Jesus. Exactly. They wanted to kill Lazarus and they wanted to kill Jesus. Again, it would not enter into their minds. That Jesus, was, or that Jesus could actually be who he said he was, even in the face of such an obvious miracle. So talk about pride. Talk about overconfidence in one's own interpretations. Even though Jesus just brought a man back to life, they could not allow the possibility that these Pharisees could be wrong. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about this pitfall. Pride makes our hearts hard and unable to accurately assess scriptural truth but let's get more specific. How does, exactly, pride affect our interpretation? Well, there are three ways that I I thought of that I want to bring to your attention. Three ways that pride causes us, or that affects our interpretation. I'll get to that picture later. First, pride can simply cause us not to study the Bible. We feel like we don't need to. After all, we know the doctrines already We've learned enough. We've become familiar with most, if not all, the sections of the Bible. And so there's really nothing more to learn. We've arrived spiritually. We've got to that highest plane of biblical knowledge. And therefore, we have no further use of the scriptures. Or maybe we don't know the Bible that well, but we don't really need to. We've got pastors and other teachers who can tell us what we need to know. Or we'll just focus on the basics, the love of God. Um, Uh, doing doing those simple things like love your neighbor, etc. We don't need to know the rest. That's good enough. Now, this is either, again, extremely naive overconfidence or it's outright sinful pride because it totally ignores the Scripture's own claim that you and I need the Bible every day, no matter how much we've come to know the Bible or God through the Bible. So pride can cause us to think that we don't need to study the Bible, Secondly, it can cause us to be lazy when we do study the Bible. Because we trust in our own interpretation so much, we do not find it useful or necessary to go through the whole process of interpretation. Yes, so I observed the passage, and maybe I looked a little bit at the context, but that should be enough. I don't need to consider what the rest of the Bible has to say on this issue. I don't really need to go back and rediscover the cultural or historical context, I certainly don't need to see how others have interpreted this passage. My mind is adept enough to discover the biblical principles without needing those extraneous steps. While it is true, we don't necessarily need to do all, or we don't have to um, do each one of those things every time we read the Bible. It is outright foolishness to think that you or I can master a text without deep study. That we can know everything that is going on in a certain verse or book or chapter all by our own intelligence and intuition, not actual deep study. This is behind the misguided sentiment that John MacArthur mentioned in the video we watched some weeks back on interpretation, when he talked about those pastors and teachers who say, I consult the Bible only, I don't look at commentaries or any other outside resources for my sermons, I trust in God's Holy Spirit. To be sure, God's Holy Spirit does illuminate the text for us without help from other peoples. I mean, this is one of the things that Martin Luther fought for intensely in the Reformation. He says, I can understand the Bible without a priest telling me. However, we would do well to heed what Proverbs 13.10 says, which is, wisdom is with those who seek counsel. Not only does deeply understanding a biblical text take deep study, But we need to consider the insights and findings of other entrusted interpreters to help us double check our blind spots because we do not have perfect intelligence or knowledge. So that's the second way. It can cause us not to study the Bible, cause us to be lazy when we do study the Bible. And thirdly, after coming up with our own interpretation, pride can make us unwilling to. To thoughtfully consider other interpretations. And this really goes straight to the core of our fallen natures. And we see this most evidently in children. But still true of adults. In the flesh, what do we hate to admit more than anything? That we were wrong, right? We hate to admit that. Kids hate to admit that. Adults hate to admit that, though they're a little bit more subtle about that. This affects our biblical interpretation. As well, We just don't want to consider the idea that we could be wrong on some conclusion that we've come to, so not only do we not seek out other interpretations, but when we hear someone else's view, we don't give it any consideration. This is especially true of things that we've believed for a long time. I don't know if you've heard yet, but according to the scientific community, Pluto is no longer a planet. Now, when you first heard this, you probably reacted the same way that I did when I heard it. You either did not believe it, or you did not want to believe it. Why? That's right, it's always been a planet. Come on, you can't say Pluto's not a planet. I mean, since kindergarten, I knew that Pluto was a planet. I I learned a song about the nine planets of the solar system. Pluto has to be a planet. <clears throat> we don't have any evidence unless you're an astrophysicist or an astronomer you can, you can raise your hand and tell me differently But we don't have any evidence to contradict the claim that Pluto is not a planet after all, we only know that it is a planet because science, the scientists told us but we resist this idea merely because we want to think that something that we learned so long ago something we always thought was true we don't want to consider the idea that it would turn out not to be true well the same thing Happens with the Bible. We want to cling to something that clearly isn't true because that's the way we've always heard it. That's the way we've always been taught. The thinking goes, though maybe we don't admit this to ourselves, how could I, I who am not prone to deceptions, how could I have believed something that could be so false? No, no, there must be some sort of explanation. For example, it's always been God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the message of salvation. That's the way I heard it. That's the way I've spoken it. Don't tell me any of this stuff about needing to proclaim sin, wrath, or repentance. Or, well, of course tattoos are sinful. Hasn't it always been that way? My parents never let me get a tattoo growing up. I'm pretty sure there are some Bible verses that speak against it. So how could any Christian justify getting a tattoo? Such sentiments, really, are just pride not allowing us to objectively handle the biblical evidence. This, I think, was the point of Jesus' statement to the Pharisees. I have it written up here as a biblical example. In Luke 5.39, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, No one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. Why not? No one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. Jesus actually says why. The The old is better, or some translations say the old is good enough. The old is good. So in that situation, just to bring it back to your mind, the Pharisees had just asked Jesus why he and his disciples didn't fast. I mean, after all, everyone else was fasting. Why would you not do what everyone else was doing? This is the way we've always done it for the last uh, number of hundreds of years. But Jesus asserted that the Pharisees needed a new understanding for a new situation. The Messiah was here. You've got new evidence to consider. There's new revelation from me, new evidence to consider my miracles. And so Jesus makes... Uh, 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 he says a parallel parable about wine. But then he uses this statement No one who has tasted the old wine wishes for the new. By saying this, he was essentially saying, <clears throat> Hold on, let me find my spot again. Okay. People are reluctant to give up notions that they've cherished for a long time, they've gotten used to it. And we can be the same way. So. We can be unwilling to consider other interpretations, especially when we've believed those things for a long time. we believe certain ideas for a long time. We can also be very stubborn when admitting a different point of view will cost us. We can be stubborn about beliefs that will tangibly cost us if we admit to them. And Sometimes we see this with unbelievers. Perhaps you've witnessed to someone, and he says something like, Well, if I admit that what you're saying is true, if I admit that Christianity is true and that Jesus is the only way to heaven, That means that my parents, who did not believe in Jesus and died, are where? They're in hell. They're suffering in hell because they they rebelled and never repented before God. So they struggle. These unbelievers struggle with the emotional cost of giving up their misinterpretation of their false belief. Or think of those who spent their life savings on billboards announcing the coming of Jesus and the end of the world. To To admit that it was all a waste a foolish use of their money based on a misinterpretation of the Bible. That would be radically humbling. That would be very hard for them to admit. Indeed, this kind of personal investment in a belief makes pride a particular temptation for teachers, myself included. If people are looking to you, even if you don't have a formal role as teacher, but if people are looking to you as a spiritual instructor or as an authority figure and someone comes to you and points out an inconsistency in your teaching or some error that, that you believe, the temptation is just to dismiss it. Not because it's invalid, but why? I heard something. Right. Yes, you do want to be right, but what's the cost? If you're a teacher and somebody says, I, you're actually, this is an error in this area. What would be the cost if you admit that? Yeah, Eric. Well, there's certainly that. No matter if you're a teacher or anybody else, there's that. There's the cost of like, oh, I can't think about myself the way I wanted to, which was like somebody who's totally accurate all the time, which is our pride, right? What were you going to say, Amy? That's the fear, right? You say, if I admit that I was wrong about this, then people are not going to trust me. People are not going to trust the things I say. I mean, they might question everything now. How will I minister? I'll lose my credibility as a teacher if I admit that I was wrong. People might leave my church. People might stop listening to me. I can't admit that I was wrong. I need to come up with some other explanation. And even parents can fall into this trap of faulty thinking. You believe that admitting that you did something wrong in front of your children might destroy your authority as a parent. When actually the opposite is true. So this concept of perceived loss and admitting that another interpretation is correct was also something that the Pharisees displayed. We'll go right back to the situation with Jesus and Lazarus. Actually, open your Bibles to John 11, John 11, 46 to 53. I want you to see this for yourself. Because they do reject the miracle, and they want to kill Jesus and Lazarus, but what reasons do they give? Look at the passage and tell me what reasons do they give in John eleven forty six to fifty three? Why, why must the miracle be rejected and Jesus destroyed? Cheryl. That's exactly right. It's very good, Cheryl. Right there in verses uh, 48 is a good summary. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So notice, for them, it didn't matter what was true. What mattered was what they lost or what they would lose if they accepted this other interpretation of what happened, that Jesus was actually true and he was God. They only think about what what would benefit them or hurt them temporarily. If only they, and hopefully we, could see the true benefit that just comes with embracing the truth. So pride can cause us not to study, to be lazy in our study, and after we've studied, to reject any alternative interpretations without even a second thought. Let's pause for a moment. Questions or comments about this so far? Yeah, Steve. But in this kind of situation, would you say that because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that was their reasoning for saying what they did, had they actually did believe Jesus as Messiah? Well, who cares if the Romans come in and take away? It's not going to happen because Jesus is Messiah, and it was this mindset of, that mm. you know, Jesus would take over, and he'd take over the Romans. Mm. So it was kind of one more step back was, yeah, if they were comfortable in the position that they were in and they liked their level of authority, but had they really believed who Jesus was, that wouldn't have happened. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right to make that make that observation. I think that is got to be a factor in their minds as they're thinking and trying to assess whether Jesus is really who he claims to be. But... Embracing the truth about Jesus would have made those things irrelevant to them. Or they could have um, substituted another misinterpretation, like the disciples did, right? They're like, oh, yeah, let's get our swords ready, because Jesus said, get your swords. He's the Messiah. He's going to set up the kingdom. We're ready to fight for you, Jesus. And he's like, no, that's actually not a true interpretation either. So, yeah, they, they could have actually substituted another misinterpretation in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of yeah, yeah. But certainly we see that thinking about themselves was something that the Pharisees were constantly doing. <clears throat> That's good. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Cheryl. Mm. So it would be like obviously for the Pharisees they trusted in that they knew the law. Mm. And um, if they were wrong, that's really scary. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, like, and that's pretty hard. It's easy to want to resist that. Yeah. I'm thinking if if we extrapolate what was going on with the Pharisees, if they laid down their confidence, they were going to get a better confidence. Yeah. Than, like, yeah. I think that's a great point, Cheryl. And that's something <laughs> we'll talk about in just a moment, that a lot of the, the fear that we have in our pride that causes us not to consider an interpretation is because... We only see the loss. We only think of the the personal hit that we take. But we don't see, actually, the great benefit that we get by humbling ourselves to that truth. That's a really good observation. Let's keep going. How do we protect ourselves, then? If this is what pride can do to our biblical interpretation, how can we protect ourselves? Well, I'm going to give one statement as a summary, and then I'm going to break it down a little bit. How can we protect ourselves from prideful overconfidence? Here's my... Uh, summary statement. By maintaining the humility that keeps us teachable. The way that we protect ourselves from prideful overconfidence is by maintaining the humility that keeps us teachable. Let me break this down into some more specific things. We need to remember three important truths if we're going to be able to stay humble and stay teachable. The first... We need to think rightly about ourselves. We need to remember who we really are. We <clears throat> want to think soberly. And Romans 12.3 is a good verse to emphasize this to us. Turn over to Romans 12.3. <clears throat> Romans 12.3 says, this is Paul writing to the Romans, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself, And he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So this is a great verse. How ought we to think of ourselves? It doesn't say that we're to think of ourselves extremely lowly. It just says not more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself too highly, but not too lowly either. So if you think about this in terms of biblical interpretation, we ought not to think that we are complete dunces who cannot understand anything in the Bible. As we said last week, the Bible encourages us by saying it makes wise the simple. Ha, that's good news. But neither ought we to think that we can perfectly understand everything in the Bible all by ourselves. We've got to think soberly about this. Just as when we talk about our sanctification in general, we ought not to think that we as believers have no ability to fight or overcome sin. But at the same time, we cannot foolishly believe that we don't need God, we don't need his Bible, and we don't need his people to help us achieve victory over sin. No, God says that we need all of those things. So we need to think soberly about ourselves in order to overcome this pitfall of overconfidence. I've listed three things um, that we need to remember that we need in helping us think soberly. First of all, we need the Bible. Matthew 4.4 four says, this is Jesus actually quoting in the Old Testament, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We can't get away from this. No matter how well you or I know the Bible, or how long we've been Christians, we still need to study the Bible. We need its reminders. We need its encouragements. We need the instruction that we didn't get when we read through it the first, the second, the third, or the fourth, the fifth, or the sixth time. There are still things that we missed. <clears throat> You're never going to be able to exhaust this book, which is good news, actually, because that means there are joyful discoveries to be made every time you go in to study the Bible, if you're actually willing to work, if you're willing to slow down and actually think about what the Bible says. So we can't pridefully avoid the Bible. We always need it. And we also need teachers besides ourselves. This is the way God designed the church. Perhaps you remember not too long ago a pastor talking about this in Ephesians. Ephesians uses that body metaphor that actually appears a lot in the New Testament. Here's what Ephesians 4, to 13 says. And he, that's God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You can see those things in there that we've been talking about, right? We want a true interpretation. We want true knowledge. We want to be mature. We want, the full, or we want the unity of the faith. That's why God gave us teachers. He gave us those because we're going to need them. So we have to think soberly about ourselves. We can understand the Bible on our own. But we need others to show us the things we miss, to show us where we've gotten off course, to show us where we've become hardened against the truth of the Bible. You probably know from your own experience and observation what happens when somebody stops listening to other people in those biblical interpretations. They start to believe some really wacky things because no one is checking on them. No one is providing a check for them. We are always meant to be ministering the truth and love to one another, even individually. We need this, so let's not avoid it. We need to hear the truth taught from others besides ourselves. And also, along with that, we're going to need correction. We all just are. If we're going to think soberly about ourselves, we know that we're going to need correction. Hopefully, you've come to realize by now that you were not born right about everything. And neither was I. You and I have believed and still probably do believe things that aren't true about God or things that aren't true about certain biblical passages. You can probably think of a time when you rejected, for example, the doctrines of grace. You thought that the idea of sovereign election in salvation was evil or crazy. But God has since changed your understanding. you come to embrace that doctrine as a precious thing, clearly taught by the scriptures. Or perhaps you always thought a certain way about some of the passages that we've talked about, even in this class, like Revelation 3 and Laodicea. But now that you've gotten a closer look at that passage, you think differently. Don't say to yourself, "Well, yeah, that was then when I was stupid. But now, now I get it. Now I get everything. Uh, By the grace of God, yes, you and I have progressed in our understanding, but how many times in our lives have we said, now I get it. And then only a few short moments afterwards, we're like, oh, actually I didn't get it. I don't get it. We're never going to arrive in full knowledge. We all always need certain parts of our thinking changed and corrected as long as we live on this earth. But you might ask, well, if I'm never going to get there, why even try? Well, let me ask you. Why care about getting it right? Why care about understanding the Bible if you're never going to understand the whole thing? Why? They are, errors are destructive. So can you explain that a little bit more? Why would that... Why would that motivate us? If we can't figure out all the errors. Yeah, Steve? Well we're always really growing or we should be growing. Mm. Okay, now you say it's good. Why is it good? Because you're absolutely right, Steve. Okay, yes. Um, No, well, you're actually saying true things. I just want to put it in some slightly different terms. Bill, were you going to say something? Hmm. yeah yeah no that's really good I think you're actually keying on something that is that this is what God wants right this reflects him what were you going to say Dwayne hmm Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good. Now let me pull these things together and just break it down into three ways. And I think you've all expressed part or all of this. First of all, we're commanded to do so. Just as, as Dwayne said, be diligent. Be diligent to understand the word. You've got to present yourself approved to God. So if you say, well, what's the point? Well, God says you've got to go after it. Secondly, it's part of our being stewards of what God has given us. It's part of our witness. If I say, oh, it doesn't really matter. I'm never going to figure out all these errors. I want to figure out as many as possible so that I can be as faithful as possible. Because I want to be a witness for Christ. And if anything is hampering that, then I'm I'm not able to fulfill the mission as much as I want to. But also, it's for the joy of it. And the more you understand the truth of God's word, the more it actually equips you. And the more it actually makes you happy because you're doing what God designed you to do. You actually get to reflect God, imitate God, receive God, display God. Those are the things that give us joy. So it would be completely illogical to not study the Bible and say, oh, I'm never going to figure it all out. I want to figure out as much as possible. God commands it. It's going to help me be a witness, and it's going to give me more joy. So we strive, just as we do in our regular sanctification. As a believer, I stumble in sin now and then, but why press forward? Paul tells us, Philippians 3, 13 to 14, I press on to what lies ahead for the joy of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Forget what's behind. I press on to what's ahead for the joy of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So expect correction. Enjoy correction. Give correction in a loving, thoughtful, and humble way because you yourself know your own frailty and your own need for correction. As a punctuation of this point, let me just quote two verses from the Proverbs. I have them listed there. Proverbs 9, 8. Proverbs 26, 2. first one says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Why will he do that? Because he knows the, the benefit he's getting in the correction. He gets to understand truth better, and therefore God better, which is his joy. Proverbs 26:12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So we've got to think about ourselves soberly. It is is our defense against pride to stay teachable. Staying teachable requires us to recognize our continual need for the word, our continual need for instruction from others, and our continual need for correction. But what else do we need to remember in our battle against pride in biblical interpretation? Well, we need to know how we ought to respond to alternative interpretations. And in a word, we need to respond reasonably. Reasonably. We need to be reasonable when it comes to assessing other interpretations. <clears throat> we should refuse to fall into the trap of postmodernism that says, well, I don't know if any of my convictions about the Bible are actually true. But neither do we let ourselves be, um, believe, in, believe unthinkingly in someone else's interpretation. Say, so my pastor said it, I believe everything that he says. Instead, we stand with conviction on what makes sense based on a thoughtful study of the Bible. And you adjust that understanding, we adjust that understanding, if and only if an alternative explanation makes more sense with the biblical evidence. This is our only hope for unity, right? The interpretations we cling to and uphold have to be reasonable, based on arguments from the Bible. If I cannot appeal to you based on evidence of the scriptures of a certain interpretation, or if you cannot appeal to me then we will only have prideful factions in the church. There's no way we can come to a common understanding of truth. We must, then, be willing to let go of faulty beliefs when the biblical evidence shows us that we ought to do so. However, are there certain arguments that we should never give an ear to? Yes, I would say so. And which ones? I have it listed up there. Do not even consider alternative viewpoints on gospel fundamentals. Why do I make this qualification? Well, because I think the scripture does. Look, um, turn your Bibles over to Galatians 1, 6-9. <clears throat> the only thing that you do not want to be open-minded about, <clears throat> if I can use that term, you're not looking to consider an alternative interpretation. This is what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6-9. Speaking to the church. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now this is super strong. Paul didn't even want the Galatians to consider or to listen to, much less consider, another gospel. Indeed, there are certain fundamentals from which we will never budge now that we have come to believe in Jesus. If proclaimers come to us denying the resurrection, denying the virgin birth, denying Jesus' deity, denying salvation by faith through grace, denying or twisting anything that is fundamental to the gospel, we should not say, hmm, let me consider that. Maybe I do need to work for my salvation. No! We reject that immediately. Such false gospel teachers are accursed in Paul's mind. Anathema, damned eternally because of their heinous rejection of truth. He doesn't want us listening to that. We don't want to be deceived by that or end up supporting that. So he says, do not be open-minded to that. <clears throat> Other than that, though, we want to heed the exhortation given in James. Turn over to James chapter 1, verses 19-21. to 21. <clears throat> where we want to carefully think about other interpretations according to the scriptures. <clears throat> James. James 1, 19-21. <clears throat> Here's what he says. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. It's interesting that we often quote verse 19. It's very memorable. As principles for acting well with other people. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But notice the therefore in this group of verses. What does therefore mean? That's right. So when you say therefore, what essentially are you saying, Amy? That's right. Based on what I just said, here's something else. The following statement is indeed, as you said, contingent on what I just said. So based on the principles of verses 19 to 20, not getting, um, not being angry, but being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, what are we supposed to do? Verse 21. What are we supposed to do? Well, it's certainly we want to stop sinning. We don't want to be angry. But in what situation do we particularly want to apply this principle of being slow to, sp- or quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry? The word of God, Right? In humility, receive the word implanted. Don't be quick to speak or to become angry when you hear something explained from the Bible. Say, that's not the way I know it. That's not the way I've heard it. Listen. Think. Search like the Bereans. You will either strengthen yourself in your original understanding or you will see that a different understanding is what you need to embrace. Again, if someone messes with the gospel, don't listen. Get angry. because That's what Paul does. But that's not the anger of men, that's righteous anger. Otherwise, stay reasonable, stay teachable, because that's what will allow you to learn all of God's truth. So, we fight overconfidence by staying mindful of who we are, we fight overconfidence by staying reasonable, and finally, we fight pride by remembering that embracing the truth is always best, no matter any temporal cost. And this is essentially the gospel, right? This is fundamental. Believing in Jesus costs you a lot. It costs you your very self. You deny yourself if you come to Jesus. But is it worth it? Well, of course. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This is true for all of God's knowledge, all the knowledge about Christ. No matter what accepting correction in your thinking may seem to cost you, it is so worth it. Will it cut down your pride? Yes, and that's a great thing. Will it cost you certain cherished beliefs and comforts? Yes, but you'll gain something better. Will it cost you control and social influence? Perhaps. But you'd rather people look to God's word as the standard rather than yourself. Actually, I think you and I would both agree that we'd much rather follow a leader or teacher who could admit his mistakes and correct them than someone who hypocritically pretended never to make them. Am I right? So, don't see correction or an alternative point of view as a deadly assault on your being or on your happiness. Rather, it's a chance for you to display edifying humility and receive edification for your own joy. Or, if the other person's actually not right whenever he's trying to correct you, you can help him. You can give edification to correcting the thinking of the misguided corrector. Can we be callous about this? Certainly not. We don't want to be rough or uh, unnecessarily condemnatory when we challenge someone else's thinking. That only arouses defensiveness. If you came up after Sunday school and called me a heretic, I might not be as inclined to listen to what you have to say as if you just said, "Uh, have you considered this point of view? But really, we all want the same thing, right? The joy that comes from the truth. And we need help from one another in this quest. <clears throat> so in summary, defend yourselves against pride in your biblical interpretation by remembering who you are. You are someone who can understand God's truth. But you're also someone who's never totally self-sufficient. Second, remember to stay reasonable when considering other interpretations, other biblical interpretations. Not based on arguments outside the Bible, but only from the Bible. And remember that yielding to true interpretation is always the best way. It's the way to God's joy, and it's the way for full equipping in your Christian life. We have one other thing I want to talk about today, but let me pause again. Comments or questions? All right. So as you return to your Bible studies this week, continue to use the observe, interpret, apply method. Mindful of these five dangerous pitfalls. Lazy misreading, distorting desires, man's ideas and experiences, relativism, and pride. But before we close this series, I think it'd be useful to take a look at some of the most commonly misinterpreted verses in the Bible. I want to help rescue some of these verses in your own understanding. To that end, I've assembled nine verses, based on different internet articles that I read and my own experience just talking with people, These are some of the most misinterpreted passages. And we won't have time to look at each verse deeply, but I want to show you enough about each verse to show you that indeed it is misinterpreted. And if you've misinterpreted any of these verses, don't feel bad, because I have too. Let's apply what we've been talking about today, and with humility receive the implanted word. So, what are some of the most commonly misinterpreted verses, probably due to any of the pitfalls that we talked about? Sorry if it's a little bit small to read, but I'll, I'll say the verse to you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. <clears throat> Countless celebrities and athletes have used this verse to mean what? I can hit a lot of home runs. That's right. I can accomplish any feat. Any feat is possible with God as my help. But what did Paul originally mean? Let's go to the passage. Go to Philippians 4.13. <clears> Now, many of you probably already know about this misinterpretation, but just in case you don't, I want to take you here. Philippians 4.13. Look at the context. What did Paul mean when he wrote this verse? It's not about hitting home runs. What is it about? Yeah, Brian. I'll take a stab at it. Um, he can do all things when you look at the the context of this. It talks about being abased and, and also abounding. Yeah. It's in the context of his uh, ministry when things are going. He, he can. Uh, he knows how to be content in Christ when things are going well. Mm-hmm. Because his content comes from Christ, not on the not on having an up day, and also he can be content in Christ when it's a down day. Yeah. When people are coming after him and chasing him from one city to another and stoning him and stuff like that. Yeah a great explanation, Brian. This is not about feats that you can accomplish. It is about never losing your contentment. It's about enduring any kind of situation. He says, I've had great days. I've had terrible days. But neither of them affected my contentment. Because my, as you said, Brian, my contentment is in Christ. I can do all things. I can endure any situation with Christ because he's my treasure. That's what this verse is about. So if we want to apply it to an athlete, He should be thinking about that verse, displaying that verse when he loses or when he loses or wins. He says, this isn't really what makes me content. It's Christ. He allows me to endure all situations. So that's one verse. Next two verses kind of I want to talk about together because they come from the same section. Again, if you have questions about any of these things, come talk to me afterwards. Next two, Matthew 18, 18 and Matthew 18, 20. Matthew 18, 18. Wait for it to come up says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. All right, let's talk about the first one. Matthew 18, 18 by itself sounds very odd. And it's used in a very odd application today. Along with something said in Revelation 20, what is this verse used to justify believers doing? They're going to bind somebody. Who are they going to bind? Satan. We're going to bind Satan. And they'll pray that way. Satan, we bind you. Is this what Matthew meant when he wrote that? Or Matthew 18.20 is often used as an encouragement to come to church or to Christian activities. Come to prayer meeting because whenever two or three believers gather, Jesus is going to be there in a special way. But is this what Matthew meant? Let's go back and look at the passage. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew <clears throat> 18. That chapter number should stick out in your mind. Matthew 18, isn't that that chapter about... Maybe you're thinking already what I'm thinking. Take a look briefly at the passage. If these interpretations that I mentioned would be valid, we should expect the context to be talking about Satan, demons, prayer, or something like that. But what is the context here in this chapter? Mainly church discipline. What are you going to say, Amy? Church discipline. In fact, we could broaden it just a little bit to say, this chapter is all about dealing with sin. In the very beginning, he says, don't cause other people to stumble. Don't cause my little ones to stumble. And then in the middle, we say, when someone sins against you, this is what you do. This is how you confront them. And then later, it says, this is how you forgive somebody who's repented about the sin he's done to you. The context is all about sin. And verses 15 to 17 are particularly important. And these are the ones that come right before the verses that I mentioned. Um, and this essentially describes the process of church discipline. Let me just read this th- with you briefly. Verse 17. Uh, actually, 15. If your, brother sins, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. But if he does not listen to you, take one... Or I'm sorry, just read that. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So, this should, if you haven't seen this before, this should really be churning the the gears in your mind. In context, what is the binding that verse 18 is talking about? The thing that came right before it was the brother who was unrepentant when the church confronted him, so he was to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. I would say, actually, because he talks about being bound, the the negative is the binding here rather than the loosing. But yes, it is talking about that unrepentant brother, right? He's, sometimes you he hear the phrase, he's bound in his sin. And until he repents, he cannot be loosed from it. He cannot be allowed back into the fellowship. Binding and loosing have to refer to the unrepentant brother. But you say, what about the heaven part? He says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Well, notice the verb tenses in verse 18. When he says, whatever you bind, what tense is that? Present tense. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Now, unless you're a crazy grammarian, you probably don't know what tense that is. But what tense is that? Future perfect. One of my favorite. <coughs> Very rare. <coughs> Without making your heads explode, future per- perfect essentially describes an action that will have already taken place by the time some other action has finished. It tells you about something that will already be done in the future. So in this case, when there, when someone is or when you bind someone, something else will already have happened in heaven. You will already have been bound. So, piecing this together, who acts first here, heaven or earth? Heaven does. So, Jesus essentially is saying, whatever church discipline you enact on earth, I will have already reflected that in heaven. You will be showing what I've already decided. In other words, heaven agrees with your church discipline when you do it according to this process. And this should help us with verse 20. You may notice the numbers 2 and 3 in this verse. Wherever 2 or 3 are gathered. Now look back at the preceding context. We heard numbers before. Why does he mention 2 or 3 in verse 20? Steve? Well, you and one other be 2, and you and two others be 3. Exactly. Even he quotes, I think, from the Old Testament. Um, By the mouth of 2 or 3 witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So two and three are not just random numbers. They're mentioned in the context. <clears throat> so Jesus is giving another guarantee here. Even if your group of Christians is only two or three, you have my authority to do this process. My presence is with you to conduct church discipline. Jesus' authority is present even in a group as small as of two or three. Very different than the common interpretations, right? <clears throat> so again, we need to be thoughtful, contextual in how we understand Bible verses, especially those Bible verses that are quoted a lot. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we're almost out of time, but let me see if I can briefly mention a few more to you. <clears throat> this next slide, I have three different verses, but they all say similar things. 2 Chronicles 7.14, And my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I'll just summarize the misinterpretation here. These verses are often used as comforts for someone saying, God's going to do good things for me. He's going to lead me into prosperity and success. He's even going to help our land in America. But this error is, or this misinterpretation has two flaws. First, it does not consider to whom these verses were actually directed. The first two, talking to Israel. The verse right before 7.14 says, If you sin against me, this is basically what God says, then I'm going to send the locust. I'm going to send a blight on your land. But if you repent, I'll heal the land. Now, we're not getting that specific curse about locusts. That was directed at Israel. So we should not expect a specific blessing either. There's a principle, yes, of God rewarding righteousness and punishing sin, but specifically that doesn't apply to us. Jeremiah 29:11 again talking to Israel in Romans 8:28 this is directed to those who love God not all people for those who don't love God God's purposes are not for their good they're good for God's purposes ultimately they're going to display his glory but think about somebody like Judas did all things work together for good for him well, God said it'd be better if he was never born from his perspective so there's a misdirection in terms of who this actually is applying to, and also how it applies. They think, yeah, God's going to give me success, prosperity. He's going to give me help in my marriage. He's going to make things smoother. But what's the good that God has in mind? Well, it's himself. And he uses trials, struggles, very terrible happenings. Jeremiah 29.11, we looked at this passage before in Sunday school. He was going to destroy Judah with Babylon. But he says, it's all part of my good purpose. Because I'm going to turn you back to me. Which is the best. It's greatest treasure. The good that God has in mind in Romans 8, 28. Very close to the passage, Paul mentions the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. God's good comes to us in a way that misinterpretations don't, don't think about. Quickly, a few more. Second <clears throat> Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, I'll wait for it. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We use this verse to comfort ourselves when we sin. Say, well, yeah, I wasn't obedient to God, but God still loves me. He's faithful even when I'm not. We fail to consider the verse that comes right before this. If we deny him, he will deny us. That comes right before. And if we think about the, the purpose of 2 Timothy as a letter, it was so that Timothy would not falter in the face of persecution. He says, Timothy, I'm about to die. I need you to stand strong for the Lord. There aren't very many people left. Would he then say, and well, if you don't, God still loves you. No, he says, endure. Endure for God's name. If you don't, if you continually don't stand up for him, you don't love him. He's going to be faithful to himself, even if you're not. He's going to glorify himself, even if it is in your judgment. So, again, we've got to examine the the passages themselves. I think I have two more. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? often hear this verse he used to talk about not doing things that harm your body. Oh, don't smoke. Your body is the temple of the Lord. Or don't get a tattoo. Don't mar the body, the temple that God gave you. But what's the context of this chapter? Does anyone remember? Sexual immorality. sexual immorality. When he makes a parallel in describing the body as the temple, he's talking about defiling the temple with uncleanness. Not with exterior things, but with sin. And specifically sexual immorality. You don't defile God's temple with uncleanness. Your body is God's temple, so don't defile it by committing immorality. Does that mean you should do things that harm your body? No. But you've got to look at different verses for that. You've got to think about the verse that comes early in the chapter, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. I'm not going to do something that debilitates me, that limits my ability to serve the Lord, or that causes me to be addicted to something that controls me. But if I eat a Big Mac every now and then. I'm not not violating the temple of God, even with its cholesterol, triglycerides, and all those other things. One more. Luke 6.37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. We'll just stop right there. (laughs) Ah! While some other misinterpretations are relatively harmless, harmless, this one is used to contradict the Bible itself. Yeah, I know they're a homosexual couple, but Jesus says not to judge. Yeah, I know they're living together, but Jesus says, don't judge. How dare you say my cursing is wrong? Jesus says, don't judge. When someone says this, he takes judge to mean making an authoritative statement about whether something or someone is wrong or right. Or is that what Jesus meant when he said the word judge? It cannot be, because Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and nearly every godly person in the Bible is telling others what is right and what is wrong, <clears throat> condemning sinful behavior and praising righteous behavior. This is part of what sharing the gospel is. Even in the section in Luke, we see the parable of the plank, very close to this verse, which says, if you, have, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, and you have a plank in your own eye, what are you supposed to do? Give up? Exactly. Remove the plank, but don't stop there. Remove the plank and then go remove the speck. Don't say, eh, not, my, not my place. I can't judge. No, if you think about the metaphor, having something stuck in your eye, like a, a piece of sawdust or wood, is painful, just it's uncomfortable, and it could cause an infection. I'm not just going to leave that there if I see it. I need to make sure that my own eyes are able to see first. I've got to repent before I call you to repent. But I am supposed to discern that. I am supposed to actually talk to you about that. So what does Jesus mean by judge? I think verse 36, which comes right before, is helpful. It simply says, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Do what he does. Does he forgive sin? You forgive sin. Does he act kindly? You act kindly. Does he Confront sin and judge sin. And you should too. But personally, you forgive the trespasses that are against you. You don't condemn people forever when they sin against you. You're merciful to them. But you do point out their sin. There are, of course, many other misinterpreted passages, but this is all the time we had to go through today. Hopefully, you see once again the theme of this series. You need to study the Bible. You need to study the Bible thoughtfully and why? So you can be accurate, so you can be equipped so you can be joyful in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this. Thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, help us to be constantly helping one another in our understanding of the Bible, staying humble, but also speaking humbly to one another, receiving correction, Lord, in a gracious way, and giving correction in a gracious way. Lord, keep us from these pitfalls and be with us the rest of this service. Thank you for your word. pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.